Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and I am joined by one of my awesome co-hosts this week. Laura Nash. <laughs> Normally that, that intro is a little more fully fleshed out, because we usually have more than just the two of us, but you know, sometimes this is a comfy size for the show. Sometimes there's just a lot of buildup, and it's one person saying their name, and it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're talking this week about a game that I've been kind of interested in covering for the show literally the entire time this show's been running, because it was a, it was a pretty new game when this show started way back in 2014, I think. Yep, it's been on the list of, like, games that aren't timely, but we could do it anytime for five years. Yep, we waited long enough that it has become timely, which, you know, that's that's the lazy man's true, uh, true gambit, you know? That's a dream, ain't it? Yeah, so the game we're talking about today is Anodyne, uh, which if you were following the video game, the indie game scene of 2013, uh, you might be familiar with. Anodyne is a indie Zelda-like a top-down, retro-looking, Zelda-like game with a very surreal bent. Uh, It originally came out way back in February of 2013, and that was at a time, like, it's today we're seeing it in a very different sort of uh, game environment than we had back in February of 2013. Uh, If I remember correctly, I think February 2013, the whole idea of, like, indie games still had a little bit of novelty to it at the time. Like it was like, oh, uh, an indie game that is trying to do the same sorts of thing that Zelda does. That in a, in and of itself was kind of interesting at the time. Yeah, for context, indie game, the movie about uh, Fez and Super Meat Boy came out in 2012. So it's mm. not that long after like indie games are starting to be a little bit bigger than just the games media. Yeah, and the game came out at the time on uh, Windows, Mac, and Linux. I'm not sure exactly who came out of those all at the same time. Wikipedia says so. I, I'm not sure about it. Um, and it, just a little later in the year, it came out on the iPhone, which is, I think, a kind of a weird platform for this game. I, I haven't tried to play this on the iPhone. Um, it seems like it'd be kind of a hard game to play on iOS. But that was sort of the indie game scene at the time was like, if you wanted to make real money making indie games at the time, you put your game on iOS. Ah, uh, how things have changed. Ah, uh, yes. I, when iOS used to be the savior of indie development. Mm-hmm. What a weird thing. But yeah, I've been wanting to play this game for a long time, but partly because it wasn't out on any consoles and partly just because it was one of those games that we just sort of kept kicking the can down the road. We never got around. I never actually got around to playing. Uh, what changed my mind on that was that in uh, September of last year, so pretty recently still, uh, it came out on the PlayStation 4. And then just very recently, uh, like last month or less than a month ago, it came out on the Nintendo Switch. So now it's out on consoles. And uh, this early indie explosion title now is accessible to console audiences, which it hadn't been up until, you know, for its first five years of this game's existence, which so, you know, I I was really glad to see it come out on consoles because it gave me a, a kick in the butt to actually give this game a play. I played it on PS4. Laura, I think you played it on Switch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, both versions are fine. Uh, and um, it has a sequel coming out, which I am... I wasn't sure what to think about it before, but now I'm really looking forward to it. We'll probably talk a little bit about the sequel maybe at the end. Um, but the sequel, Anodyne 2, is coming out in mid-2019. So theoretically, whatever that means, that's pretty soon. So looking forward to that. Yeah, I mean, we are oh, 
depending on what calendar you're using, we could be in mid-2019. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I was surprisingly in the dark about this game because all I had heard was Zelda-like indie. That was about the extent of my knowledge of this game prior to picking it up on Switch. And I hear a lot about you know Zelda-like. That's not always actually true. Uh, people call a lot of things all the likes that have dungeons in them, and then they end up just being combat focused. Or people call things with any level of puzzles Zelda-like, or just because it's 2D and there's a person wandering around with a sword. Yeah, it's a Zelda-like. Any action adventure game that, in particularly action adventure games with a top-down perspective, but even that isn't a sure thing. This game is a lot like Zelda, <laughs> like a lot, lot like more Zelda. more than most, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, interestingly, like it does, it does some things that that the original Legend of Zelda did uh, that you don't see a lot, even in later quote-unquote Zelda-likes or Zelda games, like the sort of page-by-page scrolling. You know, the, 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 the game is laid out in screens. So if you think about like the original Legend of Zelda, you know, you'd walk from one screen to the next and- And it pans. Exactly. You don't have like a free scrolling world. You have a sort of a screen-by-screen scrolling world. Um, which for this type of game, I think is a really good choice. It's a it's a game design choice that I'm 100% behind. It means that when you're solving a puzzle, you know that leaving the room will reset it, that everything you need will be there, and it keeps the pace going because you know everything I have to do is to solve this, I have available. Oh, I can solve it very quickly because there's limited content, and then I can move on. It's yeah. very rarely... You know, if there's anything between screen, it is, oh, two screens back, there's a switch. Yeah, absolutely. I have to go two screens back, switch it, go forward. But it's not as if you are trying to uh, move across a sprawling puzzle map. You are moving across a large map, but what you need to move forward isn't usually directly in front of you. Yeah, and also, uh, in addition to that, it, it um, it makes certain things really work that are that are hard to pull off or maybe even don't exist in other styles of, of um, uh, action game like this. Like, first of all, the mapping is really easy and makes sense. Like if you do a game that does this screen by screen scrolling, suddenly like maps are extremely easy to read because you know that every square on your map corresponds to one screen and it just makes perfect sense. And so the maps in this game are actually really helpful. Square, square, square. If they're connected, you can go between them. And yeah. if, if it's kind of a little start of a line and it doesn't go anywhere, you're like, oh, there's a path to the left I haven't gone. I use the map all the time and I rarely use it in Zelda um, because I think the map is often, you have a giant cavern (laughs) and somewhere in here you haven't been. Here it's just one screen at a time, all squares, very simple to navigate. Yeah, and another little thing, this isn't sort of, I don't know if it's super important to the experience of the game, but it's something that I I like about this that it draws directly from Zelda is that when you're navigating through a dungeon or even sometimes in the overworld, there's sometimes these things that happen where you go into a room, the doors lock, and you have to kill all the enemies in the room in order to unlock the doors. Mm -hmm. That's a very Zelda one kind of thing. You, You had that all the time in the original Zelda. And I actually really like that. I mean, it seems a little silly because it's just like, well, lock the doors, kill the things, and then the, the doors unlock. And it doesn't make sense in a, you know, 
like why did killing the last bat cause the doors to unlock kind of sense. But I actually really like that because it Quarantine does, mechanics. Quarantine. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes you engage with the combat and it also makes every combat encounter feel designed because you know, okay, the, the developer decided to take this room, which is always going to be this size, put this number of enemies in it. Maybe there's other obstacles that kind of interrelate with the enemies. All of the all of the combat feels um pretty good and pretty well like um planned if that makes sense yeah i think for me the biggest override or kind of almost conflict with zelda is that it feels this game feels much more open world in a way uh in that it seemed like a developer played a zelda game and and hated navi or hated the (laughs) sages who were always like down the cliff to the bear creek you should find the next place to go all of that wayfinding is taken out of this game. You can really, there are a couple literal gates, but for the most part, I was just wandering around, stumbling upon stuff. I would explore an area, think it was kind of a one-off joke, and then suddenly would find myself in a dungeon. Yeah. So it's a very um, exploration-focused way, which makes the map more important, which makes this in-between nexus world where you can jump between screens more important later. But for the first big chunk of the game, uh, before the first major gate opens, uh, you open a windmill basically, before you get there, you really are just walking around, talking people and exploring things that at times are a simple forest and at times are really, really weird. Yeah. the I think in terms of comparing it to Zelda's, the the developer has said so this is not like me guessing at this but the developer has said that his biggest inspiration was specifically um uh Link's Awakening the Zelda for the Game Boy and that's one that really resonates with me personally I didn't have a Nintendo system growing up the very first Nintendo that I got was the Game Boy actually it was a Game Boy Pocket and one of the first games that I got for it was Zelda a Link, um, a Link's Awakening, which is the very first Zelda game I had ever encountered at all. I think I remember literally going into a uh, into a GameStop with my Game Boy, which I had, you know, I had my Game Boy and Pokemon Blue, and that was all I had for it. And I was like, what are some good RPGs for the Game Boy? And the guy just pulled out Link's Awakening and handed me the cart and was like, this is the one you want to play. I do kind of differ with him now in that, like, I don't think it counts as an RPG, but there were being prescriptive. The guy was right. It's a great game, but it's also really unique among the Zelda games. By the way, uh, total side note, I can't wait for the remake that's coming out of Link's Awakening later this year. Laura, did you see the, the it looks trailers and stuff? Adorable. I love anything that's tilt shift. I love that. I love the new look. I'm kind of in it for the art style. I know oh, I played Link's Awakening when I was much younger. So I I think it'll be delightful. Yeah. And Link's Awakening is by far the weirdest Zelda. Um, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say that like Link's Awakening is very surreal and is kind of like one extended dream sequence. And this game takes that. (laughs) I think Majora's Mask is weirder, but that's another conversation. (laughs) That's a good point. But like the developers of, um, of uh, Link's Awakening, I I read an, I think it was an Iwata Asks, Nintendo used to do these wonderful things called uh, Iwata Asks, where they would have uh, Iwata go around to the various developers who'd been at Nintendo for many years and just ask them questions about the games that they had made. And I remember reading, I think it was in an Iwata Asks, uh, that the developers of Link's Awakening had explained the, the weirdness of the game 
by saying that they had been watching a lot of Twin Peaks at the time and that they loved the sort of dreamlike nature of Twin Peaks and how all of the characters in Twin Peaks are these sort of enigmas. They're weird. They're surreal. They have obscure motivations. Their relationship with the protagonist is very obscure as well. And that's Link's Awakening. And that's also very much anodyne. You can really see a through line here. I mean, if we weren't getting a remake of Link's Awakening, I would say this is the closest thing that you can play on a Switch today. Well, today it is, but the closest thing you can play to to Link's Awakening on your Switch until we get Link's Awakening on your Switch. If you have played Link's Awakening, I believe I did catch one Easter egg in this game to it, which is at some point you can kind of collect a cat friend. And if you walk over to the store, which has money you can't actually use, the cat will ask if you ever steal stuff. <laughs> I don't think I have Because that in Link's happen. Awakening, you can steal stuff. Oh, man. I love <laughs> so that I about think, Link's Awakening. I it, think that was a direct illusion. Yeah. I mean, I remember that in Link's Awakening, when you, if you'd steal stuff, it would literally change the name on your save file to Thief. <laughs> it was yeah, it was. That game's wild. So wild. That game is so wild. But anyway, this game is also very wild. And I was relating it back to Link's Awakening in terms of the gameplay because it's very exploration oriented and open ended. Um, and it doesn't do a whole lot. Of, there, you know, there's no Navi in Link's Awakening, for example. It it feels pretty. It, the world of Link's Awakening feels big, even though it's a very small game by Zelda standards because, you know, Game Boy. But it feels big because there is so little signposting. You're just sort of expected to find your way around yourself. And this does that, too. Um, it has a little bit more handholding in terms of things like the map and the nexus for fast travel and things like that. But uh, it's still very open ended. But then, of course, also, it's extremely surreal, just like Link's Awakening. Yeah, I think. For me, the first notice that there's something uh, a little more there there was when I pushed a fisherman off of a dock into a whirlpool and then I fell into it. And then I was at a weird desert where things that look like chicken legs, but there's no head or just walking around. And oh, then those when things you- are creepy. But they are peaceful. Yeah. You, do, you can't attack them or broom them. They just are like, nope, these are peaceful. It's like, okay. The thing that made me happiest about this game is when I walked off screen to a new panel and the art style color just completely changed. I was in a different spot. The music shifted and suddenly I was in another world, it, almost like a different planet. And there's no transition. And I dug the hell out of that. Yeah, every zone in this game is very different. And, you know, you can, something can be surreal and still sort of internally consistent. This is not that. Like, every zone feels like it is a different dream. Like, you're wandering from one, like, like you're, you're having a dream about, uh, you know, about a, a creepy town and then you wander one screen over and suddenly you're having a very pleasant dream about fishing or something. Like, you've got these very different, they're all surreal, all dreamlike, all seem sort of um, subconscious weirdness, but they're all sort of different types of subconscious weirdness. I, I really like that about it. Yeah, you grab a broom and that's how you kill things or pick up dust, which is a major puzzle solving mechanic. But really, it's less about combat and more about just wandering around. You collect cards. There's yeah, not a yeah. huge, strong objective or quest in this game. 
Yeah, so really, it does have a kind of a weird. Um, yeah, Zelda games tend to have a pretty straightforward, like here's your sword, go save the princess kind of setup, right? And this yeah, much but less they so. micropath. Like Zeldas are like, go go save the princess. To do that, you need to go to the forest kingdom right. and defeat this thing. Bring me back a berry. Okay, now I can do this. It, it's all very linear. Um, I'd spend the entire day doing flowcharts, so I'm also going to use a lot of flowchart vocabulary. <laughs> go for Sorry, it. everybody. But this game really is a game where you can, it's an unordered list. You can just go anywhere. And then at some point you're going to hit some gates, unlock one thing, and then everything opens up at once again. Yeah. Lots and lots of like different options to explore different directions at different to- at the same time. I, um, I think that the sort of high weirdness and surreal dreamlike quality of this world really like... I wasn't sure it would work for me, but I think it ultimately really does. Like I, I, and not just because, you know, I had positive vibes of Link's Awakening or anything. It, it, it works because it's not really telling a traditional story. You know, it, it, it's not trying to tell a like, um, you know, A to B save the princess type of story. It sets you up with initially. So you're playing as a character named Young. We don't know anything about Young. He's got these kind of Coke bottle glasses. He's a really good looking sprite, by the way. Good, good sprite. White hair, yeah. White hair, Coke bottle glasses, carries a broom for whatever reason. And that's your, your weapon for the entire game. And when the game opens, you meet a sage and the sage tells you, I'm trying to remember exactly how it's phrased, Forgive me if this is wrong. He tells you something along the lines of that you need to stop the darkness from destroying the world and you need to save the briar. And what is the briar? And we don't know. And why is there darkness? It, it, it We're not sure. Um, and then lets you loose and you can start exploring your weird dreams. And that's all very allegorical, right? It's all very, it, I mean, I know that there there's a lot of people that speculate about like what this game actually is about. Who is young? who or what is the briar um what is actually going on in this game and it's so surreal that i mean it can really only be uh sort of an allegorical look at this character's interior life or dreamlike state or something and so a lot of people have different ideas about what this game is quote unquote about i i wasn't i didn't find myself convinced by almost any of those i I went online and did some reading about different people's theories and i don't know i'm not sure it matters i just think it's cool imagery i mean a lot of people, I, I read a couple of reviews and people came up really strong about overarching themes that I just didn't see whatsoever. I mean, one second you're talking to a bear about how much sex he had and then you're talking to a pyramid. <laughs> like it's all over the place, man. And I don't think, I think that is the point is to kind of give you this disconnected experience where you have all these little themed worlds and then you're suddenly somewhere else. It's yeah. To, but yeah, it's not to like tell you about inner psyche. This is not exploring mental illness or I mean Well, I think I think it is. I'm not actually. gonna yuck and, your yums if you yeah. like interpreting this game. I just don't think there's any there there. I and I don't want to be in an English class where someone tells me like the eyes the, the are green because of Young's new money and great or, Gatsby. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think um I think I'm com- I would I think I'm coming at this game differently than I think I would have, or than the the wider gaming audience did back in 2013. Um, I don't know if I can point to a change here, but like, I think, you know, 
2013, we were hot off of Braid, remember? And like, and Braid had a big theme, right? And and people were like, was, "Oh my god, it's platforming and nuclear annihilation!" Whoa! Whoa! And and the save the save the princess is totally turned on its head, man. And it's all it's all we're all up in the character's brain. And like this game, I mean, I think it's hard to really question that this game is trying to do something like that. I don't think that it's doing it quite as like one for one as something like well, Braid. What if level design had to make sense, but the world didn't? I think that's right. what yeah, the game yeah. is. That's it. I, I mean, and I'm willing that's to- That's enough for me. I'm willing to go along with like, this game is about Young's, some, so it's about Young's psychology. Like the main sure. character Young is clearly dealing with some shit and we are seeing a sort of a dramatization of that that is all mixed up and, and weird because it's dreamlike, right? And I don't think, I, I didn't feel the need to go much deeper than that and I'm not sure that we really needed to, but what I like about it, what I like about this approach to the storytelling is that it's kind of a Rorschach test for the viewer or for the player. You know, like I um, I found certain parts of the, of the, the, the game seemed more like they were making hints at the psychology of the main character and other parts less so. But overall, I kind of got, I got a very loose sketch of who Young is. Um, and I was fine with the sort of vague outline of it. I didn't need a whole lot more detail. And my loose sketch probably looks nothing like yours, Laura, but it, it you know, I, I, that's kind of what I think it's like this game throws a lot of imagery and ideas at the wall and some of them will reflect back something at you, you know, that, and they might, that might, that picture might look different for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I like Legion and other psychological stories just as much as other people. It's just for me, I, I think there is more power and potency in the surrealist images than what they might mean like I I think there's more power in experiencing what it's like to be in a weird spot than trying to be like and the big red angry monsters talking about mothers is him revisiting his childbirth right yeah no no, I'm good or like chemroids I was like that's not also an answer (laughs) like cool maybe it's just a creepy monster dream uh, in, in, I'm happy to be in a creepy monster dream. Yeah. And, and in 2013, I think a lot of reviewers came at this game expecting to be, um, well, first of all, trying it, to sound to smarter than each other yeah. by by having the best interpretation of this work. And uh, those that didn't fall into that trap were sometimes, I think, feeling disappointed that they weren't coming up with the grand answer Hey, Inception came out in 2010. Everyone wanted to solve everything. Right. It's cool. I love how we're talking about 2013. Like, it is another planet. I mean, I was living on another planet then. Like, oof, it's a different time for me now. But I, I can't point to exactly why, apart from just, like, general life changes. But, like, I do feel like I, I'm coming at this game a lot differently than I would have come at it in 2013. And, and I think the game stands up better for it. Um, so yeah, overall, super surreal, interesting. I really, really like the general vibe and the sort of surreality of this. And it's what kept me going through the whole thing. I found it, I usually find surreal games a little too arty for, to be relaxing. Hmm. I love engaging with them, but they are very much, it's like watching a piece of cinema 
<laughs> but I think that this game felt like a very relaxing bit of surrealism where I was happy to wander around, solve puzzles, um, progress at my own pace, which I appreciated. I have to kind of say that like, I 100% agree with you for the first half to two thirds of the game. And I didn't finish the game, so I probably haven't had the frustrations that you have warned me about. Please warn our viewers. Yeah, so... Viewers, listeners, (laughs) this is not a TV show. If you're watching, get out of my house. So this game, first of all, I want to preface this by saying I really enjoyed this game. And I, I do think there are some things about it that don't hold up, but they're not, I think, because this is a five plus year old indie game. This game still feels very fresh and modern to me. Um, But there are some things that I don't think quite stand up about this game. And I think mostly they are design problems that this developer has like fully understood, acknowledged and has like tried to improve upon in their, in their, their subsequent work. So I think this does sort of have, have some like freshman game, issues that are still really interesting. And if you're aware of them, don't ruin the experience at all. Um, but some of them I wasn't aware of until I kind of got knee deep into the game and wish I had been. So, um, so first off the game has a, a card collecting mechanic in it. I'm not a big fan of, um, collecting mechanics in games in general. And I'm particularly not a fan of gating progress based on collectibles, uh, which is almost always a bad idea. And this game does that. Um, as you're exploring the, the the game, you know, most of the dungeons and stuff, you'll find a bunch of treasure chests throughout. And uh, similarly to, you know, games like Zelda and so on. And you're, you, those treasure chests, usually the reward in the chests is a card. And so the game has a, a menu screen where you can go and look at your collection of cards. At first I thought these cards are just for fun. Turns out they're actually keys. You have to have a certain number of cards in order to get past certain points in the game. There are literally gates with numbers on them, and you have to have X number of cards in order to open the gate. And worse than that, in my opinion, this game has, um, if you're if you're not doing some pretty unusual stuff, there are 37 cards that you can access in the game. In order to get to the end of the game, you have to have all 37 cards, um, which means that If you missed a card, you're going to have to go back for it. The game does a few things to make it easy to figure out where the cards that you might have missed are, but I I don't think it does enough. Um, So for example, like you can, there's an over, not not, not an overworld, there's a kind of a, um, there's something called the Nexus, which is kind of a fast travel system. There's gates that go from one place to another in the game. And uh, it's a very useful system because you can jump back to the Nexus from almost anywhere in the game, and then you can jump through these gates to go into the different areas. And from the Nexus, you can see each gate has a light on it that lights up when you've collected all of the cards in that area. Um, so at least it does that much. But I really wanted it to be like, you just have one. Uh, I know. It, it's, it's, it did not tell you how many cards are left over in no. each area. And it certainly doesn't tell available. you where. Yeah. When I got down to the, the last, say, third of the game, like I managed to have enough cards just based on collecting every single one that I could find. Um, right up until the end of the game, but there's this final gate before what becomes sort of the final dungeon where you need 37 cards, which is all of them, in order to get past it. And so I had to pull up a walkthrough. I'm going to put a link to the walkthrough that I used in the uh, the show notes, but I think you need to be prepared for that to happen in this game. 
You know, it, it reminded me of a game that we almost did for the show back in the first year that this show was on. We um, we played, I played, I think everybody else did too, uh, a game called Teslagrad, which by the way, really good game. It's out on all sorts of stuff. And it's a great game if you like uh, puzzle platformers that have a kind of a twist on the portal kind of mechanics, sort of like polarity and magnets and things like that. Really awesome puzzle game, puzzle platformer. And yet... When I got to the end of that game, I was literally in outside the boss and I realized I, uh, I need X number of scrolls or something to get into the boss room. And it didn't signal to me at all that I needed that number of scrolls. And I wasn't going to go back through every single level of the game in order to collect all of those scrolls. I rage quit it. And we never covered it on the show. That's a real pet peeve of mine. I wish I had known that this game did that little, little less of an offender than Tesla grad. Because at least there's fast travel. That game didn't have that. There's but. fast travel, but there's no... Uh, it's not as in um, like Ocarina of Time where you can say, hey, I've 100% this area. I have a compass. I can see like there's a treasure chest in this room. Right. There's no indicator <clears throat> of where these cards may be. Yeah. Um, which makes it, if you haven't visited an area in a couple hours, a couple days, it can be tough to remember where you might not have looked. Yeah. True, the map does help because it'll tell you what areas you haven't walked through, but if you just happen to overlook a chest somewhere... Mm, then you're screwed. Sorry, so, you're screwed. So I'm, I'm including a link to this uh, walkthrough that I used, which gives you a list of all the cards, and it gives you um, completed versions of all the maps of all of the areas with numbered blocks telling you where each card is. So I had to use that to get about the last eight cards. Um, and I was very glad that I did because otherwise I would have probably quit this game without completing it. I'm glad I finished it. It's got a good ending, but yeah. Um, and I plan on using that. So please don't be ashamed. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the, 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 the developer of this game has done a lot of writing publicly on the internet. He's done some interviews on, uh, Gama Sutra. He wrote a big medium article about like lessons learned from this game. And this is one of the things that he took forward into his future work was don't do this again. People don't like it, which like good learning there. Um, another couple of things that he kind of called out as things that he would have done differently if he was done doing this game again today. And, you know, co-signed, uh, the jumping mechanics are kind of weird. There's a reason that Zelda or that, sorry, <laughs> Zelda is, a, there's a reason that Link can't jump in most of the 2D Zeldas. Um, because it's bad. It's not a good mechanic. And that is 100% borne out by the experimental evidence of this game. This game has uh, jumping mechanics. I didn't have as much trouble with them as I think some people did, but there were definitely parts uh, of this game where I spent a good long while trying a, a jumping puzzle that, oof, there were some, ugh. So, uh, I, f I feel good knowing that the jumping is bad canonically because I just kept thinking like, oh God, why did I get to be so bad at jumping? I thought I'd improved over time. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the game mechanics. Yeah, there's particularly some parts in various uh, dungeons where they have these like speed plates that kind of, if you walk over them in a particular direction, it speeds you up. And so you have to like walk over several speed plates and then make very precise jumps at high speed. That sucked. So like it's doable. Don't get me wrong. You can do the jumping in this game. I just, I wouldn't have minded if they'd taken that out or maybe even didn't take it out entirely, but just scaled it back some because there's, 
there's not really a reason for it. It's it doesn't add a whole lot. So but it's there and it's another place where I think this game you should be aware of it before going in. I don't think it spoils the game and it is totally doable. But be prepared for a couple of screens of jumping frustration. Um, and I guess the final one that I want to warn you about, prepare you for, is there is a puzzle at the very end of the game. You've gotten past your 37 card limit and you get to a place mm -hmm. and there's this puzzle where you literally just have these four objects and four symbols on a grid and you have to place them in a particular way. Apparently, that puzzle requires you to think back about the layout of the dungeon rooms for all four of the previous bosses that you fought and use that the layouts of those various rooms around the world to place things on this grid. I don't actually understand exactly how that physically worked because I couldn't wrap my brain around it. And the puzzle Man, is if bad I wanted this, I would dumb. play Fez and I would look at my notebook. Right? And so like I, I will be cheating on that puzzle. This Thank one you for this one made me. me particularly laugh because like I got to the puzzle, I was like, this is a weird ass puzzle. I'm just gonna I got really frustrated with it. I Googled it. The first result was a Steam forum thread from 2013 about people complaining about the puzzle. The developer of the of the game pops into the thread to say, yeah, I think I made this puzzle too hard. It doesn't really make sense. I'm gonna change it in an update. I'm gonna redo this puzzle so that it makes sense. Never did. <laughs> the puzzle is still exactly the way <laughs> he gives you. The, but if you Google it, you'll find the solution to the puzzle. Just do that because the puzzle is BS. It's a terrible puzzle. So you should just get past it. Um, being prepared for all of that. Uh, this game you know, has those sort of freshman game problems. But if you know about them, they're not big deals to overcome. And it's totally worth working around those problems. I look forward to looking around those problems. Yeah, I... I I really, really liked and I really liked this game. Um, I had a lot of I, I had a lot of fun playing it. Just like the physical play of this game, I don't get to play enough top-down action Zelda likes. It's it's really surprising how like given how huge of a, a series Zelda is, it's really kind of surprising how few straight-up Zelda imitators there are out there that that even remotely approach like the feel of an actual Zelda game. And, and this really does. I can't think of a lot of other good ones that do, which is surprising. I mean, uh, Oceanhorn gets a big yeah. uh, credit for this, but I I mean, it, there's you're right, there's not a ton. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'd think there would be more. Like we're in the middle of like, there's, there's six Metroidvanias a month now. And like, where are all the Zeldas? I'm just sort of surprised that there aren't more. Listeners, if you have a, a favorite Zelda imitator, that you think is really good and fun and might be a fit for the show, um, let us know, because I want to play more games like this. I really had a lot of fun playing Anodyne, and I, I mean, it surprised that there aren't a lot more of them. Yeah, and it, it doesn't look like the sequel might not be like it, but it's it's no longer 2D. Yeah, um, weird. It's the got sequel... PlayStation-y graphics, so we'll see. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how the sequel works out. It, the sequel has a mix of 3D and 2D, um, so the 3D segments look a bit, I was going to say they look a little bit like the 3D Zeldas, like the early 3D N64 Zeldas, but actually they, they, they do look a little more PlayStation-y in terms of the graphics and the, the actual play of it. I haven't seen that much of it because they haven't really revealed a whole bunch, but it, it, it doesn't seem that Zelda-y. It seems a little more like, I, I don't know, 3D platformer-y, like Banjo-Kazooie-y or something. 
um, which is a weird direction to take this. But the game has this, the the, the sequel, Anodyne 2, is apparently going to have uh, 3D segments. And then when you fight enemies, you're going to shrink down very small and go inside them. And it becomes a 2D game, much more similar to this game. So um, basically your enemies are the dungeons, which I think is a clever way to kind of bridge that 16-bit, 32-bit gap. So I 100% recommend checking this game out now that it's actually out on platforms that you can, you know, do a little more of that sort of pick up and play style. I think it's a perfect time to check this game out, um, particularly if you're interested in playing the sequel later this year, uh, which I'm now very interested in checking out. So this game also it's $9.99, which is, I think, you know, that's really cheap. So it's uh, $9.99 on the, uh, the Switch and the PS4. And it's still also $9.99 on uh, Steam for Linux, Mac, and PC. And if you're wanting to play it on PC, double check your Steam library. This has gone on sale a zillion times, and it's been in Humble Bundles and all that. So double check and see if it's uh, you know on a platform you want to play it on. I think it's still also available on iOS, although I wouldn't recommend playing this on iOS. I just kind of don't see it. Considering we had trouble on jumping mechanics, I, I think it's a deep. I think it's a fake D-pad game. Mm-hmm. So I would. Generally, if something has a virtual D-pad on iOS, I say just don't ever buy it. Yeah. They're almost impossible to get right. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, also consider this is a 2013 iOS release. I don't know how well kept up it is. So that wouldn't be the version I would recommend. But the Nintendo Switch version seems great. The PS4 version was rock solid for me. Um, you know, endorse that version. And um I'm really looking forward to the sequel. So, you know, oh, and I we didn't mention there's also another, the, the developer did a couple of games in between uh, that also seem very interesting. And also have been on our list for a long time. Yeah, even The Ocean, which is uh, not out on consoles, but is a very interesting um, looking pixel art style game. It's been on our, our list for quite a while. And then he did a, a free game that I've been dying to check out that seems very short and interesting. Uh, it's called All Our Asias, which is uh, using the sort of PS1 graphics style. And from what I understand is sort of a uh, very personal, uh, you know, less sort of gameplay, more personal storytelling kind of thing. It seems really interesting. So I want to check those out now even more. Um, so it feels a little weird to do what's making us happy this week with only the two of us. But of course, we got to do it because it's part of our format. Laura, what's making you happy this week? Well, I think it's even more important that we do what's making us happy this week because I know for a fact both of us have brought our weirdest selves to the format. <laughs> and there is nobody to say they like pretzels or, you know, hanging out with their wife. This is just 100% weirdness. And I'm bringing an article on Vox called Apollo astronauts left their poop on the moon. We got to go back for that shit. <laughs> Which is a fantastic headline. Okay. Yes, that is. And two, it's a very informative article about how uh, basically the 
bacteria and the feces that astronauts left on the moon is how we can figure out how you can someday, you know, populate life on other planets. And like, did it survive? What does this tell us about the, you know, solar radiation? Like, it's actually a good science article. But I'm recommending it for the science. And because I'm a big, uh, no, I got a boner for the moon. It's okay. Really, I'm the infographics are spectacular. They're all black, white, and yellow, which seems <laughs> weird for poop. The opening header is an animation of the lunar lander over a pile of poop. Later on, there is a diagram of exactly how um, one would attach a plastic bag to your butt so you could poop in zero G. There is a, a diagram of how astronaut diapers work. Uh, there are there's a beautiful picture of the moon with little dots on it, and it said, "Where is the poop on the moon?" <laughs> and it tells you where all the ninety six <laughs> bags of poop on the moon are. We know exactly how many poop bags. That's perfect. Yeah, there are ninety six poop bags, and Buzz Al- <laughs> Buzz Aldrin refused to comment on the article. Um, <laughs> so it's this great mix of like it's hilarious to think about poop on the moon, and also hard science. <laughs> And they've got real scientists to comment on things like uh, can life spread throughout the cosmos based on like some microbes that waft off the moon's surface, like, like weird hypothetical questions that teach you a lot about basic science. Um, and it is very rare that something takes a subject not seriously at all and also with scientific rigor. So. 10 thumbs up to Vox for their weird poop on the moon article. Did not expect to learn something from it, but it made me extremely happy today. That is a good answer. I'm going to have to check that out pretty soon. Um, I think that's the thing that, so I, I'm a little nervous uh, because I'm, last week I recommended an, a, a manga and this week at the risk of setting a pattern of doing nothing but weeb stuff, I want to recommend an anime. Um, Netflix has, in this case, mostly because I think it will it'll be interesting to a video game liking audience, uh, and also because it made you happy, and also because it made me very happy. It's very cute. So um, Netflix has a kind of a bad track record in terms of uh, localizing anime. They they tend to go out and find the very worst, most boring, or even most offensive stuff to localize. I just generally think they're not very good at picking them. Um, or maybe they're just picking up what uh, what Crunchyroll and other places like that are not picking up. But uh, uh, they, they've got a lot of really terrible anime. I mean, I, I don't even want to say the n- name of it, but like, ugh, like that, like they, uh, for example, if you uh, if you want to go on Netflix and like look at their anime selection, like one of the first things you'll find is like Netflix original. And it's an, an anime about uh, Yakuza, a group of Yakuza who uh, mess up and their boss, instead of killing them, makes forces them all to get sex change operations and become idols. Yeah. Nope. 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 So like Netflix picks either boring ass anime that sucks or really bad anime that sucks. And there's like two exceptions. One I won't talk about, um, uh, Violet Evergarden, good anime. But the one I'm talking about this week is High Score Girl, which I put on mainly because it's a it's a kind of a time capsule of 
video games from the early 90s. Um, but it's more to it than that. So like you you kind of go to, you, you pull up this anime to enjoy like tons, like absolutely tons of clips of and references to like officially licensed actual appearances by early 90s video game hardware and software. Just absolute tons. It's it's unbelievable that they got all of these companies, all of these different companies to play ball so that they can show every game you can possibly imagine from Japan uh, in the early 90s. The game, the show starts in 1991. Um, by the end of the first season, you're in somewhere around 1995. So that's sort of the mm. era we're talking about. And tons and tons of appearances from licensed video game properties. But uh, it's also a really fun story. Like it's just about a, it's about a kid who's obsessed with arcade video games, particularly it starts with, uh, you know, Street Fighter II being brand new. And he's very proud of his, I think he's like in late elementary school or early middle school. He's, he's very proud of his, uh, his video game skills. And then immediately kind of into his world comes this girl from his, his school who, in class, everybody sees as this sort of perfect, proper little princess. She's from a very rich family, which he's not. And she's, uh, you know, she's a, a smart kid who does well in school and he's not. But turns out she's better than him at Street Fighter. And um, this, you know, shakes his world. And that's sort of the setup for it. And it's basically the story of their relationship over years and years uh, you know, from like elementary school through into high school at the end of the first season. And it's, it's really, it's really fun. It's like always through the lens of what's happening in video games at the time, but it's also a really fun, the, the, they describe the show as kind of like a, um, an arcade romantic comedy or something like that. Um, hmm. So it, it's a it's a sweet story. Um, I really like the main character because like that story, you, you hear that description and you worry that like this is going to be about, oh, girls are coming into our cool boy club space, right? And there is some of that, but not from the main character. And I think that's why he's interesting to the the female lead is like it it uh, it, it it doesn't play out that way. It, I'll just say like I, I won't I won't go too much into it, but like the the characters are likable. Um, pitfalls you could easily see a story like this falling into it mostly doesn't and um so often it manages to actually kind of combine the story with these video game references in ways that feel really natural so for example there's this there's this scene where like playing final fight co-op in the arcade is a big deal to these characters and there there's sort of a love triangle kind of situation going on where there's this one character that really likes this boy um, and she's jealous of the relationship that he has with the other girl right and so he she wants to get good at playing final fight so that she can play it co-op with him and um and she she wants she wants so she decides what she can do is bu- get bugs her parents to buy Final Fight for the Super Famicom so that she can get him to come over and play it co op with her. And as soon as it said that on the uh, on the show, I was like, oh no, oh honey, the Super Famicom version of Final Fight doesn't have co op; it's single player. And it's like, of course, that was exactly what happened. Like she she oh. she gets the game, and it's like heartbreaking for her because you know she's like. I, I got final fight or you want to come over and play it? And he's like, or, she doesn't even ask that. She's like, I got final fight. And he's, instead of asking, can I come over and play it with you? He says, can I borrow it? Because it's, it's single player and you just oh. see how crushed she is. It's just, 
lots of that. Like I, I loved all the video game references in it, but it's also really charming. The characters are sweet and cute and got a really odd art style for one of these. Uh, I, I don't usually like anime that has, that's using 3d models to create the, the art, but like that technique has come a long way. It looks really good. So highly recommend high score girl. It's on Netflix. And, um, it started off with 12 episodes, but they already added three more. So it's got um, 15 episodes and they've already announced a second season is coming in October. So um, yeah, it's it's a pretty good show if you like that sort of thing. And even if you don't, it might be worth checking out, particularly you know, even if, if, you're, if you like anime or if you like 90s video games or both, this is definitely worth a watch. Awesome. So thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. Uh, I have been your host, Reagan Kelly, and... Laura, where can people find you? Oh, you know, I should say where people can find our show on the internet first. Sorry, yes. it's just two of us. The whole thing is out the window. Uh, you can find our show at www.theshortgame.net where you'll find a contact form. That's a great way to let us know what games you're playing or you're interested in. Hey, if you have a Zelda-like that you think is worth checking out, uh, I need more of those in my life, like I said, so let us know. And any short games that you're interested in or that you've played and think are cool, let us know. That's how we plan the show. Yeah, I'll also say that we are working on making a page for newbies to the show. So if there are episodes or games you've covered that you particularly think would be helpful for new listeners, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, and of course, you can find our show on Twitter at underscore short game, which is another great way to let us know what you're playing or what you think is interesting. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Laura, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. And thank you once again for joining us on this episode of The Short Game.